0: Hi, I'm Victoria Starik Sommelin, co founder and director of strategy at the Council on Geostrategy, a new foreign affairs think tank based in the heart of London. And this is Geostrategy 360, our weekly podcast which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people, and experts. The NATO summit in Madrid drew to a close last Thursday with decisions to transform and strengthen the alliance. Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg said, The decisions we have taken in Madrid will ensure that our alliance continues to preserve peace, prevent conflict and protect our people and our values. Europe and North America standing together in NATO. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to warmly welcome Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman and discuss how the Alliance has been adapting to the situation on the eastern flank of NATO, his views on the outcomes of the Madrid summit, and more generally, the likely future direction of the Alliance. Sir Lawrence is Emeritus Professor of War Studies, King's College, London. He was Professor of War Studies from 1982 to 2014 and Vice Principal from 2003 to 2013. Before joining King's, he held research appointments at Nuffield College, Oxford, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and Chatham House. Elected a Fellow of the British Academy in 1995 and awarded the CBE in 1996, he was appointed Official Historian of the Falklands Campaign in 1997. In 2003, he was awarded the key CMG, Knight Commander of St Michael and St. George. In June 2009, he was appointed to serve as a member of the official inquiry into Britain and the 2003 Iraq War. He has written on international history, strategic theory and nuclear weapons issues, as well as commenting on current security issues. Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, welcome to GeoStrategy 360. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you with us today.
1: Glad to be with you.
0: So, um, Sir Lawrence, if I may start with this question. In an article published last month in The Times entitled, NATO has no choice but to support Ukraine, our future security depends upon it. You argue that Russia's war of conquest has appended the alliance's 60-year policy of deterrence and diplomacy and that now allies must take a stand. Would you please elaborate a bit more on what do you mean exactly by the 60-year policy of deterrence and diplomacy and why it is not suitable anymore?
1: Well, it, uh, to say it's not suitable anymore doesn't mean to say it won't work in other circumstances, but it's not particularly relevant to a situation where um, Russia has launched a war uh, against a non-member of the alliance uh, and there aren't very many diplomatic uh, 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 instruments available for sorting it out. So the origins of the policy go back to the crises over Berlin and Cuba uh, in the early 60s, when the dangers of nuclear war, uh, which were recognized by both sides, uh, argued that just as you were engaged in competition and conflict, there was also a need to cooperate in some ways, and there was a possibility for an imaginative diplomacy to um, both uh, manage crises uh, and move towards more peaceful situations. Uh, In in the late 60s, there was something called the Harmel Report um, in in NATO, which argued the need for defense and detente, that you you needed to build up your capabilities to show you were Prepared to, to fight for what you believed in and cared about, but also that that you didn't want war. That if you, if there was a way of avoiding it through sensible diplomacy, then that too should be taken. So um, that was the origins of a policy which really seemed to be working well in the '70s uh, when you when you had détente, when you when you had the Ostpolitik of uh, of West Germany, and relations were. Uh, between West Germany and the Warsaw Pact countries were recovered, um, when well, a variety of arms control, arms control agreements agreed, um, and now frayed a bit in the late 70s and looked in some trouble in the early 80s, but then it came back again with um, the uh, arms control agreements, Of the Reagan-Gorbachev period, so uh, and then of course at the end of the Cold War. But even after the end of the Cold War, NATO still um, uh, worked to, uh, in fact, work more on diplomacy with Russia than on defence, because at least in the first instance, defence wasn't seen to be a great problem. Um, That that was an established policy. You can't say it didn't work. It did well for some time, but it's it's not appropriate. At the moment, uh, and the attempts to find diplomatic solutions to the current conflict haven't worked because uh, of the gap between the two sides and because NATO has made a commitment to one side. It's not seeing itself as a mediator. Uh, it's backing Ukraine against Russia rather than just trying to find a way to calm the whole thing down.
0: How do you evaluate NATO's response to Russia's renewed offensive against Ukraine?
1: Um, It started slowly. Um, I think, you know, the alliance was divided on uh, how serious to take the Russian build-up. The Americans and the Brits were more worried about it than, say, the French or the Germans, even more so than the Ukrainians at one point. Um, because I think for many people it was such a, a retrograde step for, for, for Russia to take, it was hard to imagine that he would actually take it. So, the things that needed to be done there in terms of bolstering Ukraine so it could cope uh, better with the Russian offensive, th- th- those measures weren't taken. And the um, consequence of that was that, uh, although Ukraine did re- pretty well. Um, they, they could have done better um, when the uh, when the Russians invaded, but the Russians didn't uh, weren't weren't effective enough, uh, and the Ukrainians were very resilient. And gradually over time, you see NATO um, realizing that this is a long fight potentially that Ukraine isn't just going to roll over and lose, and therefore it's worth defending. Um, and over time, you see. I think three things coming together. First, um, a united belief that uh, Kyiv uh, deserves to be supported and is worth supporting. Second, consequentially on that, uh, gradual relaxation of the inhibitions on uh, the sort of weapons that could be supplied and the realization that if you're going to back Ukraine and it's in a tough fight, then you've got to... Um, give it corresponding weaponry so that it can cope. And third, a gradual loss of confidence in a diplomatic outcome that uh, however much there may have been uh, enthusiasm for um, uh, uh, some sort of mediating role, uh, some way of getting talks together, eventually you had to accept that Ukrainians were the ones doing the fighting And um, it was their call on on whether they gave up showed restraint or or persevered. And I think all those factors are now in position and it's not a lot of divergence. So um, I think you would say that it would have been better if they'd moved quicker on the weaponry um, because the logic of the situation showed that the more you got... To ukraine and the quicker you got it to ukraine the better the outcome was likely to be but they're, they're sort of reaching that stage now um so it could have been quicker but but by and large it's done all right and of course it's had the added uh, factor of um finland and sweden now saying they wish to join the alliance and going to join the alliance so that is uh, quite a remarkable development and and obviously goes in exactly the opposite direction to the one in which Putin wanted the alliance to go.
0: Let's get back now to the NATO summit in Madrid. So in one of the most notable developments uh, last week, allies unveiled a new strategic concept, which is a blueprint that sets out NATO's overall strategy for the next decade. And, well, Russia was described as the most significant and direct threat to allies' security and to peace and stability in the Euro-Atlantic area. In the previous concept agreed in 2010, Russia was described as a strategic partner. How right. significant, in your view, is this change in tone and language, and what does it also mean um, for NATO?
1: Well, it's unavoidable. I mean, you can't talk about Russia as a strategic partner at the moment. Um, I think since 2010, 20- 14, it's been apparent uh, that Russia is um, uh, sees the West as being hostile. Acts as if the West is hostile, um, and uh, so in a, in a way, the strategic concept just bows to the inevitable. Arguably, in in 2010, it was being a bit optimistic because there'd been um, some disagreement. So it was, it was more aspirational that Russia should be a a partner then um, go back to putin's 2007 munich security council speech and, and um, it's not clear he sees nato as a partner uh, but anyway the, 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 those days are over for now at least while putin is still in power uh, so i don't think you i don't think the strategic concept was a surprise of course you know how this works out over the next 10 months now that the mind the next 10 years depends on, on how well a non-NATO member performs. And uh, if Russia gets itself in serious trouble, more serious trouble than it already is in Ukraine, that's going to look uh, like a very different prospect than if uh, Russia is able to consolidate its more recent gains and uh, force some sort of territorial set- settlement with Ukraine, which will, I think, lead to a much more unstable Period um, in, in European security. So, though I think the uh, the strategic concept is fine, uh, and as I say, to a degree, unavoidable. Um, how well it works in practice is going to depend on, on what happens in in the in the war that's uh, still unfolding in front of us.
0: Um, In the NATO summit in Madrid also last week, there was a summit declaration issued. And in that declaration, NATO reiterated its open door policy, but, well, failed to embrace the membership aspirations of Ukraine and Georgia. So I have um, a twofold question here. Would, in your view, speeding up both countries' membership of the alliance make us safer? And also, should NATO plan for further enlargement, in your view?
1: I think, it, to be honest, it is tricky. Um, you know, in practice, um, it, it, it would make a lot of difference now if NATO countries were directly involved in war. I don't think Putin would have gone to war. So the issue was would making Ukraine a member of the alliance or trans, trans, transitioning into the alliance provoke Putin into what he's done anyway? Um, so, uh, it, 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 the, 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 I think the real difficulty with the open door at the moment is not um, that it's open or, or that Ukraine might not enter at some point, but it's one of the few areas where you can imagine a negotiation taking place. So, um, whereas it, it's very difficult to see Ukraine compromising at all on the question of um, territory, or or of conceding the Donbass to Russia or something, you can imagine a negotiation, because Zelensky has talked about this in the past, uh, about neutrality for Ukraine, albeit one that would be coupled with pretty um, demanding security guarantees. So um, I think it's probably fair enough uh, not to be seen to be explicitly ruling out a negotiation of that sort um it may even happen it's not clear yet whether it'll happen or not um, so if we get to the other end of this war and no new security european security order has been outlined and agreed then i think this question of ukrainian and georgian membership will become uh, will be get on the table again
0: Sir Lawrence, um, we can probably argue that there is a risk that certain allies might start talking about some sort of rapprochement with Russia as time goes by. Um, given the character of a kleptocracy in the Kremlin right now, how should we deal with the threat that Russia poses to European security in the longer term? Um, well,
1: I mean, I don't. I think the um yeah a lot does depend on how how this war ends. russia russia uh, under sanctions is being weakened not financially because as we know the oil price makes their finances quite and gas price makes their finances quite healthy uh, but they are um, their ability to uh, bring in uh, components from abroad uh, to import generally uh, the, the the pressures on uh, innovators and entrepreneurs in Russia and the extent to which they're trying to leave the country, um, just the sheer difficulty of operating there, it, it sort of grinds away at the Russian economy. But the main thing is if um, that they've lost, let's say, a third of their combat power, uh, which they have difficulties making up in terms of new equipment. They may end this, this war as significantly weakened and diminished power in which case, there may be different assessments about what is necessary to contain and deter it. But we have to see on that. Um, the regime itself is um, is obviously a large part of the problem, and it's one that's very hard for us to um, to grapple with because it's very dependent upon one individual. Um, it it's nationalistic and uh, to the extent that the main opposition in some ways comes from even more nationalistic folk, Um, Russia uh, has been economically mismanaged and corrupt. Uh, So it's been a confiscatory state. Uh, So there's very few incentives for people to go and uh, invest there. So it could be in quite serious trouble. Uh, And so long as, Putin is there, it's not altogether easy to see how it will get out of this sort of trouble. So uh, I I think there's all the issues associated with the war. Um, There's still a question about how it will end. Um, uh, And one can think of a variety of scenarios from it sort of petering out to Russia realizing that it's forces that are in difficulty and it might as well try to get something in return for agreeing to withdraw so, so this is, you know t- till all that sorted out it's hard to be very clear about the long term all one could say is as things stand and given recent experience um, the need to deter and defend against Russia is, is, is now recognised generally within the alliance and you'll see starting to see that effect Uh, behaviour in in frontline states, such as the Baltic states.
0: Um, In the article I referred earlier um, in our conversation, the article which was published last month in the Times, you also state that the public must be prepared um, with due conduct for the long haul. So um, how should the public be prepared? And also, Sir Lawrence, what exactly do you mean by the long-term long haul?
1: Well... Um, you know, at the moment uh, NATO is, countries are having to one think about having to gear up their defense production again, which is because you know, NATO stocks are now getting low. So, if you're going to keep Ukraine going, just one country, uh, you're going to have to work uh, to revive defense industries. But I think the, the main problem. Is we're entering a, a very difficult, or entered a very difficult period economically. And um, that's not going to get any easier. And it's not wholly the fault of um, the war, but it's to, to a degree the fault of the war. And um, it's certainly leading to energy inflation and food inflation. And there's no point in pretending these aren't issues um, or that they'll go away easy easily uh, but equally there's no way that um, you can sort of jettison Ukraine uh, easily in order to, to meet them because you know Ukraine won't be jettisoned it'll, it'll continue to fight one way or the other so the tensions won't go away so um, uh, I think an honest uh, approach to, to public opinion, is to explain why that we've ended up in the situation we are, uh, what needs to be done to preserve the situation, um, uh, to, to preserve the unity that the Alliance has got to keep Ukraine going, um, but don't pretend that this is gonna be easy, that it won't involve sacrifice, because it will.
0: Um, Sir Lawrence, allow me to expand our discussion a bit more um, geographically, and I would also like to touch a bit on the Indo-Pacific. So, of course, well, geopolitics has undoubtedly intensified in recent years, and we discuss now quite extensively the threat to European security and stability, but what about the Indo-Pacific? NATO labeled the People's Republic of China as a systemic competitor for the first time in its Madrid summit declaration. How, in your view, does the People, Republics of China Rise challenge the alliance?
1: Um, It's a more complicated thing than Russia. Um, There's a variety of flashpoints in the Indo-Pacific region itself. Obviously, there's the issue of Taiwan. There's the whole question of the South China Seas and freedom of navigation. Um, And there's the... um, the very strategic approach China seems to take uh, to acquisitions, to um, you know, controlling resources, uh, shipping, uh, ports, uh, the variety of things done under the, under the One Belt, One Road initiative. All of these things show that China is trying to turn itself into a, uh, a superpower, including. including in, in, in military terms as well as economic um, so that's a, just a fact of life you, you have to recognize that whereas Russia has inherent weaknesses and China has weaknesses too uh, but clearly it's got a lot of momentum behind it and it's turned itself from a very poor country into a very rich um, country in a couple of generations so all of that has to be taken into account And because it's an autocracy, um, it's hostile to to Western democracy, that makes it more difficult. So um, in all those ways, uh, NATO needs a position. I think the summit shows it's trying to be quite careful in doing that. Um, I don't think it it wants to get locked in some sort of... um, uh, intense confrontation with China. I think it would rather uh, acknowledge the competition, try to find its own ways of uh, competing, uh, but not uh, get itself in a situation where every move China makes, it has to emulate it or block it or or something. It it needs to uh, recognize that there's economically uh, a lot of mutual dependence still. And while they made the efforts to reduce that mutual, that interdependence with China, uh, that'll that'll still take time. In a way, there's just not with Russia. Um, it's, it's, other than energy, uh, it's just not there. So uh, I, I think for that reason, um, they'll be a bit cautious. Also, again because of Russia, um, you don't particularly want to pick a fight with China at the moment. Um, it's better to find ways of getting it to qualify its support for Ukraine. Sorry, for Russia. Um, uh, China's been quite careful about the statements it's made. It's clearly happy to have a go at the West, uh, objects to economic sanctions, but it hasn't done that much for Russia. And, um, you know, considers Ukraine still an economic partner for itself. So for all those reasons, um, I think it's quite a tentative relationship at the moment. And you can even see some signs of the Biden administration wanting to to calm relations down because while it's preoccupied with Russia, it doesn't particularly want uh, to play the risk of a major confrontation in the Indo-Pacific.
0: One of the key challenges in this century is, of course, the changing balance of power between open societies and large authoritarian states which seek to reshape the international order. So China and Russia, back in February, um, it was stated that they have a partnership that has no limits. So that was what President Xi Jinping and also Vladimir Putin said after their, their summit right before the reinvasion of Ukraine. Yeah um the political military economic energy even cultural ties are creating a growing concern among democratic leaders so how in your view has the war in ukraine played into this bilateral relationship and what can be expected moving forwards in this regard
1: well i don't i don't think it's particularly helped the the, the, the sino russian relationship um, i think Z must wonder if he's back the wrong horse uh, he's happy to support Russia uh, to a degree diplomatically um, if it suits him economically certainly in propaganda terms by being sort of generally anti-Western which comes quite naturally these days uh, but he hasn't given Russia any weaponry um, and um, the uh if it takes it'll take a while before they can take a lot of gas from from russia and i think there are inherent um anxieties in, in both countries about each other and the russians you note know, no, the chinese um, uh, in the past have shown an interest in siberia and will they show that interest in the future so i think you know one shouldn't assume that autocracies are natural allies uh and you know China's one of the few autocracies that are actually moderately successful. Most autocracies get into economic trouble, one thinks of Turkey, for example, um, because um, the supreme leaders like to think that they can um, push against the sort of rules of economics and. Um, Uh, or or they daren't allow themselves to be contradicted. And even with China, you can see that with COVID, whereas China has um, adopted, uh, uh, to show that Xi was absolutely right and brilliant in his response, a no-COVID policy, which is now almost impossible to sustain without regularly locking down the country. So um, I think it's quite important for the democracies. To keep in mind that for all their faults, uh, democracies tend to be more efficient and effective than autocracies um, because uh, the leadership doesn't get invested in one policy from which it's impossible to move it.
0: Um Sir Lawrence, um, no Ge- GeoStrategy 360 episode would be complete without touching uh, on how do these um, issues and developments affect the United Kingdom and also what's happening uh, back home here. So a couple more questions before we finish our conversation. And the first one is in her recent speech at the Mansion House in April, Alistair, our foreign secretary, called for NATO to have a more global focus. So in inviting um, the heads of state and the government heads of Australia, um, Finland, Georgia, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, Sweden and Ukraine, do you think the alliance is realising this objective? And, well, does it make sense?
1: Um, I, I think we have to, you know, I think the UK problems lie more in its domestic policy and trade policy than it does in its foreign policy, by and large the ukraine crisis has been handled well by the government uh, and it's gained some points from doing so it's uh, established um, uh, an indo-pacific approach it's got the deal with australia and the us on AUKUS, and so on so it's done all right Uh, and it's pushed this idea of uh, democratic countries going coming together but it, it I think it has to be quite careful on that. First, you know, one of these countries is India, with, with democracies that is a bit under threat there. So you don't want to pretend that countries are different to how, how they are. I think you to have to deal with countries that aren't democracies because too many countries aren't democracies, but they're still important. Um, and I think there's always this danger in discussions of British foreign policy at the moment that you either get into sort of absurd boosterism in which the British are the most wonderful and the, and the greatest, and doing everything right, and a sort of defeatism, whereas because of Brexit we do everything wrong, um, and it, you know it's more it inevitably it's more complicated now. But, the, but you know, the, the foreign secretary does tend to boosterism at times, um, and it's just unrealistic, and, and, and the danger is of being judged by standards and aspirations that you can't actually. Meet. So um, I don't, you know, I think uh, by and large the foreign policy of the government at the moment is fine, um, but um, you don't want to make outlandish claims for, for what the UK can do on its own. Its, it's foreign policy, its defence policy certainly, is now very linked with that of the United States. So if there's a major rupture in some way, same with the second trump administration that could be difficult and we still haven't worked out how to work closely with uh, with the rest of europe and there's been some progress on that but as we can see with some of the discussion of macron's ideas on um, uh, on, on, on the future of europe and um, different forms of relationship on the security side We haven't quite sorted out our own ideas yet to be able to make a significant contribution. So um, I'm not too worried about British foreign policy uh, at the moment, but we do have to address these two issues. One, over-dependence upon the US, um, and two, uh, an uncertain relationship with the rest of the EU.
0: And Sir Lawrence, um, to finish our conversation, um, once again coming back to NATO's new strategic concept and the developments which took place last week, um, the language in NATO's new strategic concept and the summit declaration is very similar to that of Britain's Integrated Review, which was published last March. Do you think the Madrid summit has been good for the United Kingdom? Yeah. It's
1: been fine. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, it was, I'm sure the Prime Minister was quite happy to be out of the UK over the last week or so. Um, he likes, I think, like all political leaders in uh, in a bit of domestic trouble. I think he finds foreign affairs quite congenial, uh, by contrast. I mean, the alliance is going in, in directions the UK wants. Um, and the UK has influence in the alliance, whereas you know, we obviously lost all our influence in the EU. So in that sense, I think it, it, it's going fine. Um, the, uh, the Biden administration, I don't think, has warmed to, uh, to the Johnson government. Uh, and there are issues about Northern Ireland and trade negotiations. Around, but, but overall, um, they've managed it quite
0: well. Sir Lawrence, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation today and for sharing your thoughts um, on this topic. It's been a pleasure and an honour to have you with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And this is Geostrategy 360, the Council on Geostrategy podcast, which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people, and experts. You can listen to Geostrategy 360 on all major podcast platforms, and you can find all our podcasts on our website, www.geostrategy.org.uk slash podcasts.